Well, this morning I want to talk about investing, but I don't want to talk about how you might invest your assets and how you might organize your portfolio and your retirement plans and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, I'm not really qualified to do that, but I do want to talk to you about investing for the sake of the kingdom and how we might invest in the kingdom. That's what we're going to learn this morning from Luke chapter, excuse me, not 13, Luke chapter 16, as we look at the parables of um, uh, our Lord. And there's, we're going to see two parables in this passage. In fact, we're going to see that this text really breaks down into two scenes. But I think you'll also see that the two scenes relate very clearly to one another. You'll see that there are ways in which um, they echo one another. For example, the whole, chap the whole chapter begins and ends with parables that begin with a very similar statement. There was a rich man. And we see that the final parable and the instructions that attend that come as a response to some Pharisees who were mocking Jesus for his instructions in the first half of the uh, chapter. And for these reasons, and there are others I think that we'll see along the way, this text, this chapter is a unity, even though we could break it apart into sections and see, uh, spend a, a whole morning speaking about one half of our, or the other. I do want to think about it all together. As we think about this subject of using our assets, stewarding what God has given us in a way that is faithful to our Lord. Along the way, we're also going to focus on, a, we're going to look at a couple of other significant issues as we think about Jesus' instructions concerning the law and the prophets, concerning divorce and remarriage, and concerning the intermediate and the eternal state. I want to draw some points about that, but our main focus will remain on how we might use what God has given us in a way that glorifies our Lord. So if you found your place in Luke chapter 16, would you follow along with me as I read? In, from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my, owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation and the sons of light than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, fathers, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us hearts that are repentant and believing. Lord, we recognize that no great sign or wonder would convince any of us to trust in your Son apart from that great sign and wonder that is the outpouring of the Spirit, the Spirit who in our hearts causes us to be born again so that with this new life we see with the eyes of faith. Then we believe, not simply because we see signs and wonders, but even simply because you have spoken. We recognize that your word is your word, and it is true. This is a gracious gift, Lord, and we pray for it even now that you would open our eyes and give us wisdom and understanding as we come to a text that teaches us a kind of secret and hidden wisdom of the kingdom and places it against the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that is characteristic of our world as well. May we learn the wisdom of Christ, Lord. May we learn your wisdom well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said that this text really breaks down into two halves. And I do want you to see that. I mentioned how the first parable and the last parable both begin with that line, there was a rich man. You see that there in verse 1 of this chapter. In verse 19, again, there was a rich man. And though the focus of each parable is a bit different, that the rich man is center stage in that latter parable, well, he's really a secondary character in the first parable. Nevertheless, that repetition of a line is striking and it does unite this text uh, as a whole. We also, of course, see that verse 14 shows us that 
Jesus' response to the Pharisees in that latter parable and the teaching that precedes it really comes as a response to their response to his prior teaching. We see in verse 14 that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. They heard what Jesus was teaching and they mocked him for it. They ridiculed him. They took up the position of a scoffer. That word ridicule is one that's common in the wisdom literature in Psalms and in Proverbs to characterize those who scoff at the ways of God, who scoff at his wisdom and choose rather a way that is foolishness. And so here we see that the Pharisees take up this uh, stance as those in the, in the broader narrative who are fools. But Jesus first, as we've seen, addresses his disciples and he does have a very interesting, very challenging parable by which he seeks to instruct them. And that parable is going to challenge us as we think about it because it, um, it, it, at first we recoil and we say, well, this individual that's the focus of this parable is a dishonest manager. He's a rather uh, bad fellow. We don't want to be like him, right? How can Jesus hold him up as an example for us to follow? And I simply want to say at the beginning is Jesus is not saying you can go to work and, uh, and, and be bad at your job and then you can weasel your way out of it or, or make the best of that bad situation simply by being shrewd before you get fired. That's not the lesson of the parable, but rather we're going to work from a lesser to the greater kind of logic as we've seen very often in Jesus' teaching where there's an example of a person who's not a very good fellow and yet he acts wisely in a particular circumstance. And so then Jesus challenges his disciples. Here is how the sons of this age, the sons of this world, act in their generation. And you are sons of light. Should you not be wiser than them in this generation, in this time, in this age in which you live, as you think about the future and as you think about what God will do? That's really the sense of this parable. So let's look then at the, the details of this text and understand what's happening. We see immediately there's a rich man, and this man must have some uh, great wealth, for he can afford to hire a manager to manage all of his assets. That's the kind of picture that we have of uh, today when we think about great business magnates who have multi-million dollar empires and, and even billions of dollars. They hire lawyers and they hire managers who manage all of their assets for them. It, one individual cannot simply manage all of that wealth, and so they have to spend a great deal of money employing people simply to manage the great wealth that they have. It's the picture we have here. This rich man is so rich he can afford to have a manager. And the people that we'll see who are debtors to him seem to have some substance of their own. They, they owe him such great debts that they must be businessmen who's, who in their business they're reliant on this other man who has uh, a greater, uh, a larger business. And you can imagine, uh, some, some years ago I worked for um, a lock company. I was a salesman and I sold locks right, for a large manufacturer. In fact, one of the largest manufacturers of doors and door hardware in the world who is a conglomerate of many, many companies and I sold just one little brand of locks and keys and I would go and I would meet with distributors and the distributors, they would have uh, their own empire that was smaller than, than our manufacturing business but they would be reliant upon us as the manufacturer to supply them and they would owe us money when we would supply them with goods and then they would have locksmiths that they would um, support and they would provide their, uh, the goods that they gathered and distributed to the various locksmiths and other uh, builders and construction companies uh, that were even smaller than them who would then owe them money and have uh, debts that they would have to pay to them. That's the picture we have. We're in the kind of space in between where this very rich man has other businesses who are probably fairly wealthy people but are somehow dependent upon him for the goods that they need and owe him something as a result. 
and he employs a manager to manage all of that empire. And this man manager is not a very good manager, we see. Charges are brought against him there in verse 1, that he's wasting, that the manager's wasting the man's possessions. He's scattering his goods. He's very much like the prodigal son who takes his father's uh, money, takes his inheritance, and he goes and wastes his father's possessions. It's the same language there in chapter 15. He scatters what belongs to his father in that section. Here he scatters, he, uh, he misuses what belongs to his master. And so the master calls him to account. He says, essentially, give an accounting of what you've been doing. Give me the bill of receipts. You've got to turn it in. You can't, you, you, these charges are very serious. You cannot manage my affairs anymore. And essentially, he says, you're going to be fired. But he doesn't fire him immediately. There's a, we have to understand this to understand the parable. There is a, a space of time where this man knows he has to give an accounting. But there's an understanding that there's going to take some time to write up this accounting, to give the bill of goods, if you will, to the master. And in that short space of time, this man, who's the manager, knows that he can act with urgency to secure his future. That's what we need to understand about this parable. He understands the urgency of the moment, and in that situation, he acts wisely. And so what he does in this space of time before he must go and deliver this accounting to his master, he calls his master's debtors, and he cuts them deals. Now, he's continuing to act in a way that's somewhat dishonest, somewhat unfaithful. We need to understand that. Jesus is not saying necessarily, be like that in that quite part, that particular way. We'll see in a minute how to apply that in our situation. Basically, he's saying, you owe my master 100, 100 uh, 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 quarts of oil or whatever the measurement is. You owe him a certain amount of wheat. We're going to cut that in half in the first case. We're going to cut that, uh, we're going to remove 20% off the top of that in the second case. You owe 100, make it 50. You owe 100, make it 80. It's not that he's collecting that payment right now, but he's cutting a deal and he has the authority to do this. And he knows that when he delivers that accounting to his master, his master's not going to go back and say, that guy was really, he was going to get fired. Those deals are null and void. Because that's going to reflect badly on the master. He's going he's to realize that his debtors are going to feel like they're, well, he's going to be in the good graces of his debtors. They're going to continue doing business with him. But he's not going to be happy about this, but he's going to realize he's stuck with the situation as it is. The master acted in his full authority and cut these deals for these guys. And why did he do this? Well, he said, I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm too weak to be a digger. I can't do manual labor. I'm not cut out for that, and I'm not going to beg. That, that's just not something I'm willing to do. And so he cuts these deals in the hope that these men whom he gave these deals to will then receive him on the other end when his management is taken away. He surmises that maybe he'll get a job or maybe they'll receive him into their houses and they'll provide him with food while he figures out what to do in his life. And so when he comes to his master and gives him the accounting, his master commends him in a kind of like a you sly dog kind of way, a wry commendation, a, you know, as one has said, a slow clap of, I see what you did there. That was, uh, that was shrewd what you did. He comes to the master and the master commends him there in verse 8. Uh, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You could, you could translate that for acting wisely, for do, or even better, doing wisely. That's going to be a key, that, that language. of Rather than shrewdness, think doing wisely. 
It's not good English, but it will help us to connect some dots and to make sense of this parable for us. That's where the parable really ends. Jesus then applies it to his disciples, saying, the sons of this world, the sons of this age, is is what he's saying, the sons of this generation, this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. They're wiser in respect to their own generation than the sons of light are. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I called your attention in verse 8 to this idea of acting wisely, the shrewdness that he displayed. I said that that's key. Because look back what the, man who, the manager says when he says um, to himself in verse 3, what shall I do? The key word there is do. What do I do in this situation? And then in verse 4, I have decided what to do. Do and make are the same word in the original. I want you to understand that. So that when you come down to verse 8, you see that the master commends the dishonest manager for doing wisely. And then Jesus tells us to make, again, it's the same word as do. Make for yourself friends by means of unrighteous wealth. You see that connection there, and you see another connection then just in the way that the sentence is worded. Look at the second half of verse 9. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And then look back up to verse 4. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now you see in the language there, the the way that the grammar is, the the, the sentence is structured in the self-same way, and the same kind of vocabulary is used of doing something that's wise, and seeking to be received into houses and something so that when something takes place, that is the thing that Jesus is commending to his disciples. Act in a particular way, like this man, as he recognized the urgency of his situation and he acted wisely in that moment. He managed in a state of great, uh, uh, great, a great empire of great wealth. And he managed that estate wisely. Because he did not look at that and seek to just so hoard it and hold on to it as long as I'm going to lose it, but I'm going to enjoy as long as I can the fact that I am in charge of such great wealth. To him, that charge was already worthless. And so he started cutting deals in order to benefit himself on the other side of this. So then Jesus takes it and moves it into an eternal perspective when he says, so that make for yourselves friends by means of unrighteous wealth, the possessions that God has given to you as a stewardship, for what purpose? So that when it fails, it will fail. Earthly wealth belongs to this age, not to the age to come. It belongs to the kingdoms of the world, not to the kingdom of heaven. It is a stewardship that God has given you, but it will fail even if it doesn't fail in some kind of stock market crash or some kind of great depression like people went through uh, about a hundred years ago, it will fail, at the very least, when Christ returns. And so look at it as a fleeting stewardship, something that you can't really hold on to. It'll be like water slipping out of your hands. And then see that urgent situation and say, how can I use this in order to bear eternal fruit? How can I use this profitably? So that when it fails, people may receive me not into their homes, but into eternal dwellings. In the final parable, we're going to see a picture of a man who fails to do that. 
That's what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. Use, steward your wealth in a way where you recognize the urgency of the moment we live in because of the kingdom of God, because of the presence of the kingdom and the coming of Christ. He goes on then to, to expand upon this idea then, as he tells us to make for ourselves friends, the idea is to use wealth in a way that is profitable eternally. How can we do that? Well, we can be faithful stewards. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And you may sit there and say, I don't really have a whole lot. Every one of us has something, whether it's money or whether it's time or whether it's skills and ability. And we can use that in a way that's faithful to the Lord or we can use that in a way that's faithless before the Lord. And that little stewardship, though it seems small, is a test. It's the basis for our credibility before our Lord. As people who are able to steward a little bit, then we will be evaluated as people who can steward something greater. What does that look like in eternity? Quite honestly, I have no idea. There's some passages in Scripture that describe it, but it describes it in earthly terms. I really don't know what it will look like in eternity. But you don't think about that when you seek to steward what you have in front of you. You simply steward what you have in front of you and let God worry about what the stewardship He'll give you in eternity will look like. But He calls us to be faithful in stewarding what God has given us, no matter how great or how small it is. No matter what, it is small relative to that stewardship that we might enjoy in eternity. Let us not be people who are dishonest, though, unrighteous in a very little. For those who are unrighteous in a very little are unrighteous in much. It doesn't change just because you suddenly come into great wealth and you all of a sudden become a great philanthropist. If you're faithful with a little, you will be faithful with much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? It's not just about going from little to much. We also see that the things that we have now are characterized as unrighteous. As, uh, they're, they're related to uh, this age is, what to, is, the, is the idea. Just as the, the, the same words that are sometimes translated as unrighteous and unfaithful and dishonest, it's the same word throughout, unrighteous. It connects it with that man in the parable. It connects it with the, this age and the people of this age. The things that we have now are fleeting. They will be destroyed. They will not endure into eternity. But they are a basis for the Lord to evaluate His people. And to, uh, they are an, a trust that he has given us to steward in view of true riches, true kingdom riches. Again, what will those kingdom riches look like? I don't know. But they will be true compared to this, which is false, which is fleeting. And again in verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another, who will give you that which is your own? Again, we look and see that though that which we have now, not only is it relatively little relative to the kingdom, and not only is it unrighteous and dishonest relative to the true riches of the kingdom, but it also is not even ours. It's not something that belongs to us, which we are predisposed to think that everything I have is mine. I earned it. I worked hard for it. At the end of the day, it's still God's. It's His trust that He has given to us. Our skills, our ability, no matter what, we go back to the final source. We go back to the source of it all. He is the source of it all. Everything you have is something that God has given you. And so think of it that way, as though you are someone who is uh, uh, assigned to manage things that God has given you, not one who is the true possessor of those things, in the hope that in the future, then God will give you that which is your own. And again, what does that look like? I don't know, but it will be better. 
You're going from something that is worse to something is better in each of these statements. And then Jesus kind of draws it all to a point for his disciples as he says, this is the attitude of someone for whom his wealth and his property and his possessions is not his God. On the flip side, so many in our age, money and wealth and possessions and skills and fame and whatever it is that you can have, that is what we are told to worship. That is the good life. Why do I want dollars? So I can invest it and get more dollars. What's the point of those more dollars? So I can get more dollars and more do and, and someone is living as a captive. Their wealth is not only something that is little, not only something that belongs to another, but now it becomes a competitor for their worship and therefore a threat to their souls. And so Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and he'll love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one. He will cling to the one. He'll despise the other. He'll hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. Perhaps in our age and in our culture, there is nothing that so threatens our worship, our devotion to the Lord, than monetary wealth. Even if we don't have it, we long for it, we desire it. Money is a great threat to our souls, for it would have us. It would be an idol. And even this word here, mammon, which we translate money, seems to have been an ancient way of speaking of a, some kind of divine being, some kind of uh, idolatrous uh, imagined being that stood behind wealth, mammon. You cannot serve both. If you serve God, then your money will not be a God to you, but simply a stewardship that God has given. And we need to understand that. That's the way of the kingdom that Jesus sets before his disciples. But now here, as the scene turns, we hear the Pharisees. And they are introduced to us as those who are lovers of money. They are exactly what we're not to be. They hear these things and they ridicule, they mock. To them, this isn't wisdom. To them, this is utter foolishness. And so Jesus confronts them. You're those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They're self-righteous men. That's what it means to say they justify themselves. We think all the way back to the parable of the Good Samaritan when the man asked Jesus, what's the great commandment? And Jesus answered, what, is the, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? And the man seeking to justify himself, we read. This, this man says, uh, you know, who is my neighbor? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, who is my neighbor? Because he's seeking to just, he's a self-justifying man. He's a self-righteous man. And so, too, these Pharisees are self-justifying, self-righteous men. They cannot see in themselves that they have sin and wickedness for which they need to repent. They rejected the preaching of John. They rejected the preaching and ministry of Jesus. And they exalt themselves. They're lovers of money, and that goes along with this self-exaltation and this self-righteousness. God knows their hearts, Jesus says. God knows your hearts. And there is a day coming, as he's been saying over and over again, when the first will be last and the last will be first, when that which is exalted will be brought low and that which, those who are humble will be exalted. Why? Because the things that men exalt, the things that are, that are lofty and are proud in our eyes and our estimation in this world, those things are not just low in God's eyes. They're an abomination. God speaks in the strongest words. Jesus speaks in the strongest words to speak about what those things are before God. He 
hates them. Utter abomination in the sight of God. Those things which the Pharisees love. Jesus goes on to say these strange things, and we might even wonder, what does this have to do with the larger theme? The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, the sense here is that, that the law and the prophets stood as a testimony concerning what God would do and the kingdom that he would bring through his Christ. But John ushered in a new age when that kingdom came. And John came proclaiming the kingdom is here. It has come. And he called the people then to repent. And the idea of everyone forces his way into it is to say, you could, you could render this maybe slightly better, is everyone is urgently pressed to come into it. Everyone is called to, to come into it with reckless abandon, to make this your urgent desire. But the Pharisees have said, no, thank you. That's not the kingdom. We're not, we're not going that way. They've rejected this call. Now, Jesus wants them to know that reality, that shift in the times, the new inbreaking of the kingdom of God does not nullify the law of the prophets. It doesn't mean that those pass away. Why? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. God's word will endure forever. The law and the prophets are God's word. Now, that's difficult because it doesn't mean that necessarily we have to go back through Genesis, through Deuteronomy, and then say we are obligated to obey every single commandment in here. Well, that would contradict other things that Jesus has taught concerning uh, eating of foods and concerning the uh, feasts and the festivals as he taught through his apostles and otherwise. But rather, the law and the prophets together have an enduring authority because they continually testify to the necessity of repentance and continually testify to the reality of our sin and they continually testify to the coming of Christ, to the perfection of Christ, and to the sacrifice that is ultimately necessary that is fulfilled in Christ. Luke will show us that over the course of this gospel. We don't need to dwell on the point um, too deeply now because we will see it again and again as we move on to the end of Luke Luke's gospel. But it is important to understand the law and the prophets have this enduring authority of pointing us to Christ, of showing us our sin. And Jesus then takes this particular aspect of the law to convict these Pharisees of their sin because in that context, they would have been very, very open to permitting divorce for a whole host of reasons. There are some who even wrote some in that time and uh, uh, would even write that if a man was displeased with his wife because he didn't like the dinner she made, he can divorce her and marry another. That was the way some of these men thought. And Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That challenges us, of course, because we know that whether some of us have failed in this regard, and, and all of us, I suggest, fail in our hearts and our minds at different times in our lives as Jesus confronts us and we think of his words from the Sermon on the Mount. Whether one has failed in this regard in terms of the actual act or whether it's just a matter of the heart and a matter of the mind, no matter, it's still the same before God. We've all failed in this way. I think that what we need to do is understand the context in which Jesus uses it. To convict men who, confronted with a word like this, would say, no, that's not right, I haven't failed in this way, I'm free to divorce if I please. 
We have no problem with this. And it should convict us too, but what's the solution then as we, if we say, I have failed in this way, whether it's in my heart or in the reality of my life, is we repent. We recognize, yes, I am guilty. I am guilty of these things. We repent. We pick up and we press on. And sometimes that means that we restore broken relationships, but other times it's really impossible to accomplish that. We recognize that too. And so we simply press on with faithfulness and fidelity in so much as we are able, in so much as is possible in our life. And we trust in the grace that we've received through faith in Christ to cover our sins. He died for this kind of sin too. God raised him from the grave. And so we are sure that no matter what sins we've committed in the past, we are forgiven. But in this new life, then we look forward and we press on with a new found commitment to faithfulness in our marriages, to hold fast to our marriages, to refuse to sever those marriages in so much as is possible and so much as is able. We are able. Of course, there are many other situations that come into this uh, discussion which we'll leave for another day. But at the very least, we need to understand the way in which Jesus uses this statement, applies it in this moment to the Pharisees who are self-righteous, self-justifying men. So finally, then, he concludes his confrontation with them by comparing them to this rich man that we see in this parable. There's a rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen and feasts sumptuously every day. He lives his life using his resources to do what? To please himself, to exalt himself, the finest clothes, the finest setting to live in, the finest food. And here's a poor man named Lazarus sitting at his gates whose only friends are dogs who come to lick his sores. And yet we're struck all right, ready off the bat with something shocking. The rich man, we don't know his name. Lazarus, we know his name. Which is a subtle way of showing that Lazarus is the one who will receive true honor in the end. This Lazarus is not in a good state at the moment. He's covered with sores and he desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He's at his gate being laid. He's seeking for this man to help him in some way. Just a scrap from your table. And we're to understand that the, the rich man can't find it in his heart to do anything for this poor suffering man whose only friends are dogs. And they both die. And even in death, on this side of eternity, the rich man receives honors, for he is buried. Nothing like that is said of Lazarus. But on the other side, we see that great reversal that Jesus talks about again and again. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here we see a great reversal as Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side by angels. And we find then the rich man there in Hades, in hell, suffering anguish. In this text, we do see a picture of the intermediate state. What happens to us when we die? It's a question I've received. What happens to us when we die as we await the resurrection? And the answer is, if you are in Christ, you will be with Christ. In this parable, the picture is of being with Abraham. Christ has not yet died and has not yet risen. And he puts it in this language, being with Abraham. And Abraham surely will be there. But here, ultimately, we can understand that the final picture is that we will be with Christ, present with the Lord, but we won't be in our bodies. 
It will be disembodied spirits. But it will be a place of comfort, as we see in this parable. It will be a place of rest. It will be a place of joy. But if we are not in Christ by faith, then when we die, we will go to a place of torment, a place of anguish, while we wait that final day for the final judgment, which will lead us into an eternal anguish and destruction that will last forever. And we see that this is a fixed thing. There's no changing it on that side of death. Pictured in this parable by a great chasm that is fixed between Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man who is in Hades. There's a great chasm between them so that no one may cross from one side to the other. And accordingly, we also see that Lazarus, or the, the rich man excuse me, has not changed. He's still unrepentant. He perhaps recognizes that the chance of repentance has escaped him and it's not there for him anymore, but he never shows any sign of repentance. And he's still as proud as ever. Think about the way he speaks about Lazarus throughout this parable. I'm in torment here, so Father Abraham, do this. Send, that, send Lazarus, send that guy you know, sitting next to you. Send him to dip his hand in water and, and cool my tongue. That can't happen? Okay, send him, send him back to my brothers. I have five of them, my family, to tell them to repent. And he still sees Lazarus as one who should serve his needs. Yet when mercy was needed of the rich man by Lazarus, he couldn't find it in his heart to do any of that. And we see the utter hypocrisy of this man, the utter pride. He still is exalted in his own eyes, over Lazarus at least, even as he is in anguish and torment. Of course, that can't be. That's the point of the parable, in part, to show the Pharisees that the time for repentance is now. Time to turn from your self-righteousness and hypocrisy is now. And One way that they could do that in their life is by ceasing to love money and start stewarding their resources in a way that would make them not like this rich man, but would show mercy and kindness to their neighbors, to their brothers and sisters among the people of Israel. But they're not like that. They would be people who would view their wealth and their possessions as a sign that God favored them. They wouldn't see it in that eternal perspective where a great reversal is coming. And so he's there begging that Abraham might send Lazarus to his father. Of course, Abraham's response, what is it? They have enough. They have the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. Lazarus isn't convinced that that's enough. No, 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 that's not Send them Lazarus. If someone from the dead would go to them, then they would believe. We, you've surely heard this, I think. I've heard this. I had a friend once who, uh, an ardent atheist, and I asked him what might change his mind. He said, I will not believe unless God appears before me and says, here I am. I was flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say in the moment. In the years since, as I reflected on that, and I thought about what might I have said if I were quicker with my words, I would have said, I don't think you would. You still wouldn't believe, even if that should happen. That's what Jesus says. If one won't believe when convicted by the law, which can be summed up in what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and being, and love your neighbor as yourself, and look at these men who love themselves with all their heart and soul and mind and being, and love their neighbor. they don't love their neighbors at all. And they think they're keeping the law. And they think that they have God's favor upon them. 
What will come upon them is eternal judgment. And what will come upon us is eternal judgment if we don't hear that word and repent and believe in the gospel, which is a gospel of a free gift. You didn't do anything to deserve God's grace given to you in Christ. You didn't do anything to merit the coming of Christ. God sent His Son because He loved you when you were unlovely. Christ gave His life because He loved you when you didn't deserve it. And He calls us and presses us urgently, repent and believe this gospel. And one evidence, one way in which we show that repentance is by thinking about what God has given us in a radically different way. We start to think about what we have, not as our possessions, which, is, which we, we, we want to hoard in a miserly way, and, and not as a way to think first about ourselves, but rather thinking, this is a stewardship. God has given me a job with whatever I have, whatever skills I have, whatever time I have, whatever wealth I might have, whatever gifts that God has given me, that is a stewardship that will someday be gone. How can I use that now in a way that has an eternal value? So we say, I know what I will do. I will use it. I will spend it on those things which I know will endure forever. Let me give you an example and then give you uh, some, uh, 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 a procedure, you could say, of how you might do this. And I'm drawing again from this idea of investing, this analogy of investing. The best investors... They know a thing about timing and valuation. They know how to value a stock. And so when they, they know how to time their entry into the market so that they will see a stock is overvalued. If they possess it, they sell it. And they see that a stock is undervalued, they buy it. And they hold on to it until the proper valuation is seen. And they buy and sell with the right timing because they can value that which will last. We have to think this way, but rather eternally. I have wealth that will go to zero. Its valuation will be zero someday. Now think about, if you, suppose you had $1,000. This will make the math easy. Say I said, take that $1,000 and put it in an account that will give you 10% interest and leave it there for 30 years, you would have $17,000. And you would say, wow, that's a lot. That's a great return. But every dollar will be worth zero someday. You don't want, know when that will be. It doesn't mean don't invest and save for the future, but also do this. Think about what that $1,000 might do, for example, if you uh, were to purchase Bibles and you could get, say, 250 Bibles. And there are organizations doing this kind of thing. And you could have those Bibles distributed in the developing world in places where within a church, a congregation of, say, 30 or 40 people, there are only three Bibles to share among every person. And now those people all have Bibles of their own. And what are they doing? They're growing closer to God as they look to His Word and this great treasure. And maybe because they've grown, close, grown closer to God and because they've understood His Word more clearly, they are more effective as evangelists. They bring someone else to Christ or someone plants a church or someone becomes a minister and disciples others and the fruit redounds. And you know what? You'll never see, you'll never know what kind of return you got on that investment this side of eternity. You don't worry about that because you know the valuation. That's what a good manager does. He knows the valuation of the stock, the true value of a thing. And he sees if the market undervalues or overvalues it, and he acts accordingly. And I know the valuation of a human soul. It's an eternal value. It's a, it's a person that will last forever. I know the value of God's word. It is eternal. It will endure forever. 
And there are many ways in which we can do this, not just a matter of distributing Bibles, supporting missions, helping one another. And this is the way that we ought to think about our stewardship that we receive. And so what can we do then, practically speaking? Is how do we think about this? Some of us have more than not many. We don't all have the same stewardship. Well, think about what an investor does. An investor looks at the market, and he might, if he's wise, approach the market as, a, as someone who averages what's called dollar-cost averaging. He just regularly invests and regularly invests in the things that he knows are good investments and just that regular input of investment. But he always has some cash reserves so that if he sees an opportunity, he's ready to seize upon it. Well, now apply that to the kingdom. Develop in your life a regular pattern of giving. And I'm not talking about giving to this church. I'm talking about giving in, in all sorts of ways that nobody would know about to uh, the work of missions or to help someone you see in need, but just a regular pattern of doing that. And then you can have some ready, too. And when you see a real need, an urgent need, you say, I'm going to push some extra in there because I see there's a real need. And that's going to be something where I can invest in an eternal investment. That's a way to think about how we steward our assets in a way that is wise. I'm not saying become poor and sell it all right now and give it up. And I'm not saying, I'm saying don't be a miser. Develop those regular patterns. And we need to do that corporately, too, and think about that. We, you, you, you all do this well. Don't take this as chastising. I, I see this in your life, and I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep doing that and, and to just know you're stewarding it well as you do that. And keep stewarding it. And don't look to the way that people might praise you here and don't try to do it in a way that people can honor you here and that you might be exalted now in this life for it. But just know that on the other side, in eternity, you'll hear well done and faithful servant and that will be worth it all. Come into the joy of my master. And that will be worth it all. So just keep doing it. And do it all the more as God gives you the ability the wisdom, and together as a church, we'll think about this too in the months and years to come, is how can we steward what God has given us collectively so that we might do things of eternal consequence with what little God has given us in a way that is faithful so that we will also together here, well done, good and faithful servants, and we will say, that is worth it all, that our Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And so we can live confidently now free from the love of money, with contentment and joy. It's people who graciously give out of gratitude for what we've been given. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we indeed be such a people who give not because we think we'll earn some kind of special merit from you in this life or from others or praise. And don't give out of a sense of duty either because we think it's what's required of us that we might check a box. Rather give out a heart that is full, a heart that is content, a heart that is grateful because you've given us something of eternal and enduring worth that can never be matched, not by all the treasure in the world. And out of that gratitude and out of a trust that you will indeed provide for all of our needs as you promised, may we be a generous and gracious people with the stewardship that you've given us, O oh Lord. Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the salvation that you've given us in Christ. 
May we indeed be such a people who say confidently, You are our helper. We will not fear. What can man do to us? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.